Hey everyone, this is Max Jacobs, producer for I Have to Ask. This week, we're going to play another of Isaac's favorite interviews from this past year. This one is with Judd Apatow, and it was recorded March 22nd. Enjoy. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Judd Apatow, the producer, writer, director, comedian, and many other things whose films have included The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Trainwreck, and Knocked Up. He's also had a role in a bunch of television shows from Love to Girls to Crashing. His latest project is The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, a two-part HBO documentary about the late comedian which airs on HBO beginning Monday, March 26th. Judd Apatow joins me now from Los Angeles. Judd Apatow, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. So I want to ask you a question um, about something in the documentary, which I uh, mentioned in the intro about Gary Shandling, which is you say that you were doing a job for Shandling and you stayed up all night and wrote a hundred jokes for him. I've always heard comedians say things like this, and I, I want to know what that process is like. What does it mean to write a hundred jokes in, in a night? Well, he was hosting the Grammys. So there's a lot of categories, I guess. I I, I think I just went through the, the charts and tried to think of it. Everybody uh, in music at that moment and write a joke about Kiss, write a joke about Crosby, Stills, and Nash, write a joke about Uriah Heep, write a joke about Eric Clapton, and on and on. And then the next day, Gary uh, you know, appreciated I, I wrote so many jokes. And then we went over them on the phone, and he basically took the setups of, of most of the jokes, and then he would think of a better punchline that better suited him. But I think he was very happy for me to explain, you know, what was happening in music at that time, because he wasn't a hardcore music fan. You kind of have worked with like, it seems like every comedian in the modern era. Uh, Is there some comedian that is especially hard to write for? And is there some comedian that you really like writing for? And I don't mean difficult, like a difficult personality, but just like their personality is such that you to, to to sort of craft a specific joke, whether you're writing a movie or a TV show, is there someone that's really hard and someone who's really easy? Well, there are usually people that are easier to write for because you just feel like you have a similar worldview. It was always not easy, but I felt like I was someone who who could write for Gary Shandling because we were neurotic in similar ways and uh, it thought. Uh, it, it, about jokes and comedy in a similar way. So even though he didn't like everything I, I, I wrote for him, I never s- pitched things where he thought I was crazy. You know, sometimes you write jokes for people and they think, you you are so far from the type of joke I would do. I was always in the ballpark. I was always stirring the pot in a good way. But there are people that are very different than me and and I probably couldn't. You write jokes for them. So, yeah, can you not write for not neurotic people? I guess that's the obvious one. Well, luckily, most comedians are neurotic. There's there's not too many uh, that, uh, you know, th- that are solid as a rock. But when I first started, I-, I wrote jokes for Tom Arnold, and then I wrote jokes for Roseanne. And for a year, I did nothing but try to imagine what her life was like and her concerns were like. And, you know, she, she wrote an enormous amount of material and was a – really brilliant uh, comedy writer. And I would go to her house on the weekends and she'd pull out all her legal pads and we would kick around her jokes. Wait, so uh, who are the non-neurotic comedians? You you got to have one in mind. Is there any? Well, I think uh, we, Will Ferrell is a very uh, solid guy in life. Uh, he 
I, you know, is a, you know, really smart, interesting guy, but I don't put him under the category of tortured person. Seth Meyers uh, seems uh, pretty, pretty mentally together from all of my interactions with him. But, you know, you never know what happens when people are behind closed doors. Well, that's so, what I, you must see these people behind closed doors. So I want to know which of them are not actually uh, all lunatics. Well, there's a, there's always a door behind the door. That's true. That's, so you, you just don't know. You said you and uh, Shandling had similar neuroses. What were those or what are those? I think that uh, we both had complex mothers who were both, uh, you know, you know engulfing and smothering and 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 toxic and 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 difficult to navigate at times and you know that's a specific kind of childhood uh i think that you know you know we we shared a a world view where you know we were you know hyper vigilant you know you know i i'm the kind of person and gary is like this too you know you 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 want to succeed, but you also realize that part of the reason why you want to succeed is you have a feeling of safety as a person. You know, if everything's going okay and the work is good and the jokes are funny, life won't fall apart. And and that's uh, not the most pleasant way to approach your life, but I'm sure there are worse ways. It seems like his life from watching the documentary, which I'm hoping you'll talk about, was, was sort of... Um, a little more hectic than maybe yours is you you seem to live kind of a you know a, a boring life you have a wife and you have two kids and you know you're not involved in a lot of drama and, and so on and, and his life seemed very different and w- was that one of the things that appealed to you about about doing the documentary well that wasn't the the part that uh appealed to me what what appealed to me was this idea that gary was a, a really fascinating complex person who was such a kind supportive mentor to me and a lot of people and when he died I, I I realized that most people didn't know much about him the public didn't know much about him personally and even a lot of his friends only know knew him to a certain extent and and people were frustrated by that they 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 always wondered when he was alive how he was doing you know he seemed consumed or troubled at times at other times, he was just sharp and funny and easy, and sometimes you didn't know what you were going to get, and and most people just didn't know the reason for that. And the the documentary is a way to fill everybody in on this beautiful guy who, you know, ha- had some rough times and spent his life trying to evolve to, you know, be a better, more loving person. I would imagine making a documentary about a friend that you, I don't know, you may find out things that you don't want to find out uh, Is if, if that was the case, or um, you feel like, I mean, you obviously learn more about him, but you had a sense of what his flaws were already. I mean, I could see that being a little bit emotionally uh, risky. Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, you know, it's different than, than the other documentaries I've made I I just thought to myself, I'm just going to be honest. I think that's what Gary would want. He, he'd want his life to be presented exactly as it was, as best as I could portray it. And then there are lessons in his life. There are lessons in his mistakes. He he, he certainly was you know, trying really hard to 
figure out a way to live where he had some spiritual peace and and meaning. But he did make mistakes. You know, when he uh, broke up with his fiance, who was also one of the stars of the Larry Sanders show, he fired her from the show. And that's a terrible thing to do. Uh, it's awful. And she sued him for wrongful termination. And uh, he, you know, had to you know pay a settlement to her. She ultimately forgave him and they became friends again. But he he wasn't a perfect person. And I think that's that's uh, what he was interested in. That's what the Larry Sanders show is about, that nobody's perfect. People are all suffering and trying to figure out how to get through this life. And Gary was fascinated by the things we do to sabotage ourselves, uh, the, the way our egos prevent us from being more loving and kind. Uh, it, it was That was a lifelong obsession to him. And I would imagine became more of an obsession the more famous he got. Was that an aspect that he wrestled with? And is that an aspect you think about as as sort of you've gone from someone who was behind the scenes writing to someone who's a, a name in your own right about sort of how that changes your perspective? Well, Gary had a pretty unique experience, which is he was a young comedian. He was really funny. And then The Tonight Show asked him to be a guest host, which was very rare. Very few young comedians were given that opportunity. And he became very, very famous. And then he created its Gary Shandling show and became more famous. And the Larry Sanders show you know, became a satire of a famous man and the problems that that created for him, both, you know, in his life and also in uh, his soul in the ways that, uh, you know, would change someone. You know, it was a guy who would shoot his show and then go home at night and watch his show and obsess on what everyone thought about him and his ratings and and that prevented him from having normal healthy relationships and in some way Gary was you know psychoanalyzing himself through this character who seemed to embody all of uh, the flaws that Gary hoped to to get rid of you know he he would always say the difference between me and Larry Sanders is Larry Sanders couldn't write the Larry Sanders show. He wasn't a self-aware person. I, I heard that said about John Updike. People used to say that John Updike was just writing sort of a version of himself or his sexual desires or something. And the answer is obviously, well, the characters he's writing about could not write John Updike novels, which is an interesting way of thinking about figures in culture or literature or something that seem to be like their author or their you know creator. Well, I think it's both. I think that Gary had a lot of Larry Sanders in him, but also, you know, Larry Sanders uh, has some very big differences uh, with Gary. You know, Gary was a real spiritual seeker. He was interested in Buddhism and Eastern thought. He spent a lot of time meditating and thinking about life. And I think, you know, one of the funny, you know, interesting aspects of Gary is he was so obsessed with non-attachment and letting go uh, of of one's ego and realizing that life is a dream. But at the same time, if he performed at a benefit for you and it went really badly, he'd probably talk about it every time you saw him for the next 10 years. 
Well, okay. So, but tell me, I mean, as, as what about for you as, as you've gotten more famous and what that does to a person's ego? I mean, is, is that something that you consciously wrestle with? Well, luckily uh, for me, I, I, I'm just not that famous. And so that's, that's a, a good thing. Your PR people to get you on the show told me you were super famous. So I, well, just, they are paid so much money for that lie. Uh, but, uh, you know, if I go to Disneyland for the day, there, uh, there's definitely going to be three selfies given to the 25,000 people I pass by that day. So my level of fame is wonderfully low. And I remember going to a, a Clippers game with Gary and just two or three people said hello. I don't even think they asked for an autograph. They just, you know, said like, hey, Gary. And and Gary said to me, I have the perfect level of fame because most people don't recognize me, so I can do whatever I want. And the people who do recognize me are really excited to see me, but it's pretty rare. I think the bigger issue uh, isn't fame. It's trying to do good creative work, trying to, you know, have your place in this business as someone that people believe in, that's consistent and reliable. I think there's a lot of pressure to hold your position and to to come through, not just for them, but for yourself. Uh, it's, a, it's, it, it's hard to feel like you can achieve your creative goals and 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 do strong work time after time. That's the thing that drives you mad. I've heard people say that one of the other hard things is that you you that you know if someone the more powerful they get or the bigger role they have the in the industry, the harder it is to find people who will tell them no or will tell them you know actually this isn't good or this needs to be edited differently or this needs to be changed. Uh, is that something you found, or do you feel like you have people in your life who can say like, "Come on, Judd, that's not that funny" or whatever it is. Well, I try to have a very open process and that's something that you have to cultivate over the years that you have creative uh, friends and advisors that know that they're allowed to say, Judd, this is not working yet. And I am very open to people's opinions. When I, when I make movies, I, I do screenings first for a dozen friends and 30 friends and a hundred friends. And then I start showing it to you know, real audiences and, and I'm obsessed with taking notes. So I, I think that's a key part of the process, but there are people that don't do that. There are people who just say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm just going to edit my movie and then say, I'm done and hand it in. And that's it. And we did that with freaks and geeks. We, we, we would just edit episodes. We didn't have the time to show anybody and get feedback. Some just the writers looked at them uh, the, you know, the network did, but you know, they, they didn't always understand what we were doing. So we didn't really make adjustments uh, for them. So it, it can work in both ways, but you do have to encourage your friends to tell you if something's awful. I was reading an old interview of, of you in New York magazine and, and the person who David Marchese, who did the interview said, what criticism have you read of your work that was useful? Has there been one? And this was your answer. You quote, no, because I already think about all the problems with my movies. I used to read every piece of criticism about my stuff, but it became too hard to know what to listen to and what not to listen to. I think I have a good understanding of how people experience movies. And sometimes the truth is that I'm in a real please the crowd mode and sometimes I'm not. And. I was curious if one, you feel like you still don't read sort of outside criticism and two, 
when, when you talk about being in a please the crowd mode or not, are you talking about like a project like a movie or are you talking about like a certain joke or a character change? Like how, how do you how do you conceive of that? Well, there are certain projects that are built to be crowd pleasers and they're built to work in a certain way. And it doesn't mean that they're not as thoughtful or you know, challenging as other films. But if I'm making a movie like uh, The 40-Year-Old Virgin or Trainwreck, in a way they're traditional romantic comedies where people meet and have problems and then you figure out their main problem and, and, and they end happy. And so you know on some level that at the end of that movie you're trying to figure figure out how to do all of that in a very credible, funny way and have a big hysterical ending where everything comes together and it's built to be a crowd placer. And and that's my favorite kind of movie. That's why I go to the movies to get that that jolt of joy and and belief in, in, in people. But other times uh, movies are talking about how how difficult life is and that there aren't easy answers uh, to many of the big questions. So when we made a movie like uh, Funny People, it was about, uh, you know, a, a, a comedian who is uh, struggling. He gets he gets sick. He gets better. He, he's having trouble learning uh, the lessons of, uh, of, of his life. And we see all this through the eyes of a of a young comedian and 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 we know that at the end it it's not going to have that burst of of joy and energy that uh one gets when watching the Ford Virgin you're really watching someone learn a very small lesson he's not ready to learn the big lesson he's not ready for his relationship yet all he can do at the end of the movie is something selfless like writing jokes for Seth Rogen after we've watched him be completely selfish the entire movie. And so on some level, it's not built to be a crowd pleaser, but you know, a lot of our, our, our great films are, uh, you know, are in that mode and there's something satisfying about exploring the human condition. You know, Gary, uh, you know, some people say to me, was funny people about Gary? And I always said, no, funny people is about the opposite of Gary. Because Gary was the, the person that wanted to give you notes on your act and kick around jokes with you and give you notes uh, on, on your films. Uh, he was the, you know, the, the reverse of that. So who was funny people about? Well, it's funny because when we were making it, Adam Sandler and I thought, you know what? It's, the, it's, a, it's really about us. It's about the side of ourselves that... Uh, you know, wants to win at all costs. Uh, you know, it's it's the it is the ego driven uh, part of a comedian who is thinking more about his jokes and what he wants and his desires than about other people. And it's definitely inspired by Gary's interest in the characters on the Larry Sanders Show because that's what the Larry Sanders Show was about. And Gary always said that. The Larry Sanders show is about people who love each other, but show business gets in the way. And you could say that about most movies. It's about what what gets in the way of people connecting and loving each other and being kind. And and I think funny people uh, follows in that tradition. A friend said I should ask you what uh, Gary Shandling or Larry Sanders would think of um, late night TV today, which uh, he described as viral friendly bits and long, sincere news outrage. 
Gary was a big fan of late night television. I think that's why he did a TV show about it. Right. It was just so different then. But go on. I think he was just more interested in the people who make it than being a host. I think he he was fascinated by people like David Letterman and Johnny Carson and Jay Leno and Conan and what it takes to be a host and how difficult it is and uh, and the, the the way you know an office is a you know microcosm of, of of any community you know the way the leader is supported and gets his ass kissed and 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 uh, the politics of that space Gary was very impressed with how how strong people uh, are at at these jobs. I, I we we talked a lot about how amazing the last you know few months uh, of Letterman were, and I, I know he was a big fan of 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 Bill Maher, and I think he was generally super impressed with uh, people who were authentic. He just liked when people were real. And he also admired amazing joke writing. So, uh, you know, Gary died two years ago. He did get to see, you know, this era of of late night television, and and he definitely talked about how how amazing a lot of the work is. What do you think of late night TV today versus when you started watching it and thinking about it? Well, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin and Johnny Carson. And there was nothing I enjoyed more than watching Johnny Carson bomb during the monologue and then make jokes about how bad it was going and fight his way back. I I, I watched Letterman from day one and loved all of the experimenting uh, that he did. Late night television is, you know, it's very vibrant right now. Sometimes I don't watch it. Because I'm so depressed by the real news. I have trouble enjoying comedy about all of these awful people. I, I, I you know, there are times when I, I can laugh at the jokes and I love when someone dissects the hypocrisy and the corruption. But there are other times where I think, I don't want to laugh about this. These people are awful or you they don't even want to think about them. You just like don't even right. I, mean, I want to. I want to think about it seriously. I, mm-hmm. You know, the, these people are looting our country. They're gaslighting us. I, 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 and I wonder if all the comedy is helpful. But at the same time, I'm a stand-up comedian, and I write tons of jokes about the president and and what's happening. I'm just saying, as a human being and as a person, sometimes. I want to laugh about it, and I need to see people explain it to me in a way that amuses me, but is clear. And other times, I just want all these people to get arrested. Yeah. Well, no, I, I want lots of people to get arrested, too. I mean, I guess, I guess you know, my problem with the Alec Baldwin thing, I mean, Alec Baldwin is obviously like a comic genius and uh, an extremely talented actor. But I watch the Trump thing and I just, I don't, I mean, it's, I just don't enjoy it because it's like, a joke about Trump has to be so good for me to enjoy it because, again, if not, I just – it's hard to even find it funny or it's too close to home. I don't know what it is, but it's – the bar seems very high. I I think that uh, – you know, one thing I liked about the president's show uh, was that it was basically saying this is really dangerous. It It, it – it was funny, but darkly funny and also very angry. And I, I, I generally appreciate that tone. 
some sometimes the lighter tone bothers me because I feel like it's a moment in history where we're all supposed to be furious and and taking to the streets about uh, the issues uh, that we're all debating. It is a big deal to give a trillion dollars uh, in tax cuts, uh, mainly to corporations and corporations which are doing great and really don't need it. Uh, you know, that's that's theft. That's a lot of people donating money to a lot of politicians. So they will make uh, that happen. And then they make billions and billions of dollars. We all heard like Mark Zuckerberg made this many billion dollars that day. And that doesn't mean Mark Zuckerberg is uh, stealing it himself. It just means that the, the, the whole organism is built to, you know, to find a way to get as much money to rich people and corporations as possible. And I think it's important that everybody else is pissed off and, and, and learning how it's done so that they can elect officials who are more concerned with their welfare. Well, I uh, I didn't think we were going to go here. This is what my podcast is normally about: tax cuts and uh, exciting topics like that. But um, <laughs> exactly uh, the other the other topic uh, in the in the real world news rather than the comedy world, which you've been tweeting about and talking about, is the Me Too movement. And you've gone after a lot of people who have um, sort of waffled on the importance of it. And I, I guess my first question for you is: uh, Do you you're obviously a producer in Hollywood as well as um, someone who, you know, does comedy and, um, you know, what, what, where you work, are you sort of trying to do to bring about some sort of change of the type that you've been tweeting and writing and talking about? And two, how, how much do you actually see real systemic change happening versus, um, you know, people talking about it? Well, I think in, in my, the career I've had, you know, an, an awakening on these issues when I first started making movies and television, I don't think I thought about diversity at all. Uh, I'll be honest with you. It, it wasn't part of the conversation. I was happy. I was getting a job and, and I wasn't exposed to this discussion and that doesn't take me off the hook at all. But, you know, I'd hire a producer, he'd hire a crew. And if, if he thought about those things, great. If he didn't, I'm not saying I, I would even notice that much in the earliest days of my career. I think it started to change when I worked with Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor on Girls. And when we crewed up, suddenly we had an enormous amount of women on our crew, uh, a, a, a lot of diversity, and we talked about it. And... Lena was, uh, you know, very aware of of the importance of that, and and I think that going forward, I made adjustments uh, on my other productions, and I'm sure that I could con can continue to do better. For instance, I saw uh, this uh, general speak. I'm going to guess and say McChrystal, but probably I'm wrong. And he was talking to people at a Hollywood Reporter or Variety event. And he said, uh, and I, you know what? Probably I got the wrong general's name. Whoever it was, it doesn't even matter, was saying that Easter Seals has a program uh, where they uh, connect veterans who want to work in the movie industry with productions. 
and that we should try to hire more veterans because it's uh, difficult for them to find work sometimes when they uh, return from service. So at every production since then, we've worked with uh, these people and instead of hiring you know, someone's kid as a favor, we hire veterans uh, in, in a lot of uh, positions on our, on our uh, movies and television shows. Now, if I didn't see that guy, I wouldn't have known to do that. I can't say I would have been enlightened, uh, but that, that has been an incredibly positive uh, uh, change that we've made. And every single person that we've hired through that program has been fantastic. Uh, and I think the same thing is true for, you know, for all diversity. You know, it's very simple. If I get a green light on the TV show, I sit down with my line producer. And if in the first meeting I go, make sure the crew's diverse, it gets done. If I don't say it, I'm going to get 90% white guys. That's just how it works. And it, it all it takes is for... The, the head person to care. What do you think about this idea of inclusion writers? Well, I don't know much about the inclusion writer. I have to say, I haven't you know read up specifically what it means, so I, I don't have a, a you know a, a you know a specific opinion about formalizing it. But I, I think the key is that everyone needs to want to do it. I remember I visited Will Smith's set one day. And the entire set was populated with African-American people. I mean, it seemed like, you know, the vast majority uh, of, of the crew were African-American. And it, it made me realize how white my crews had been in the past. So it, it really can be done. But the big part about it, which people rarely mention, is it's about giving people breaks. It's about giving people jobs who haven't had that job before. It's about giving people first opportunities. If you don't do that, you're not changing Hollywood. If you give the same people work all the time and you don't you know, get a, a, a lot more people from, uh, you know, you know, who, who aren't represented, uh, then you're not really helping. And one way I've seen it change is uh, at places like Netflix and HBO, they've said, you need to make half of your directors on your television shows uh, minorities or women. And that instantly changes it. Cause I bet most shows it's probably, you know, eight or nine out of their 10 directors are white men. And now it, suddenly it's, it's uh it's 50, 50 uh, at those places. And I think that's a great thing. Two people that you've done a lot of work with, Aziz Ansari and James Franco, were accused of some variety of sexual misbehavior, the Aziz one, in a, in a sort of strange article for um, Babe.net. I'm wondering when you read something like that, sort of how you as someone who talks about these issues deals with it. Do you call your friends? What, do you, what, is, your, what is your sort of process when you, when you read something about someone you're friends with or colleagues with? Well, you know, it's different because I, I know an enormous amount of accusers and I know an enormous amount of the accused. So I, I'm getting information from both sides. And uh, these issues are very difficult. I don't think that people have really figured out how to process all of this. You know, we have the criminals, right? We have Harvey Weinstein and we have, you know, you know people who are being accused of rape. And then we have all of these other people and they're being accused of all sorts of things from, you know, light disrespect to just being a douchebag to, to being uh, manipulative or abusing their power. Um, uh, and, and so we're all 
you know, talking about what does it mean? What should happen? What should someone's punishment be? Is there any way they're allowed to make amends? Are people allowed to learn? How long are they, uh, you know, how long are they, you know, not working for? Or should they never not work as a result? And and because there's no president of show business, there's no board of directors making these decisions, uh, it's, it's a little bit like the Wild West out there. So uh, I think the next year or two, we're going we're gonna to see how the business decides to deal with all these people. Um, but as of right now, we really don't know. Well, so, we but how really do you deal know. with it just as a person? Forget being in the business. I mean, just, you know, you open up the LA Times and there's a story about James Franco, who I imagine you're friends with, not calling him Harvey Weinstein, but saying he used his power in certain ways uh, that were exploitative to use the terms that the women were using. I mean, what, what do you, how do you deal with that? Well, I, I mean, there's nothing for me to really deal with. I have my own opinions, but I can say that my opinions on any case uh, are factual. You know, most of us aren't in these rooms. So what's my priority? My priority is that women should be heard. They should be taken very seriously in all cases. It doesn't matter if it's their, my friends or not my friends. I, I, I also think there's a place for people to be able to defend themselves and to try to express their version of events. It seems like most people accused of things have not found a way to discuss their point of view. It, uh, it definitely feels like if you, if you say, this is what I think happened, that you are at risk of people thinking you're attacking your accuser. And so if you've noticed no one who's been accused of things, except for a few people like uh, Ryan Seacrest and Fred Savage the other day, most people haven't, haven't defended themselves. So uh, there's a strange, you know, situation happening right now where a lot of people are just paralyzed. Uh, But ultimately I think everything that's happening uh, is messy, but it's incredibly necessary. Women have been treated terribly forever. And every story that you've heard about sexual harassment, I've heard a hundred more. And there's no one I talk to that doesn't have the worst story that you've ever heard. And a lot of people quit the business because they just go, this is too toxic an environment for me to exist in. And I think the fact that we're talking about it a lot is is very positive because, you know, a few years ago, no one would even consider speaking up. Well, I mean, but do you feel like if you were to cast someone in another movie or TV show who'd been accused of something that you would – I'm just curious about your own – like, do you feel like I would have to talk to them and sort of say, like, what happened here? Or I mean, how do you – because you're obviously responsible for a lot of people getting jobs and how – you know. Well, there was somebody who who uh, has been in the news for things like this who I had worked with in the past. I, I hadn't planned on working with them in, in the future. Uh, and uh, one of the accusers uh, – you know, was, uh, you know, saying things on, on Twitter about the case. And, and so I just called the accuser and said, tell me, tell me what happened. And let me tell you about my relationship with them. And it was very helpful and, and, and very productive. I don't know how much of that is happening. I think, I think that's important. I think we should, you know, all be very 
open about it. So yes, if I was considering hiring somebody and I felt like it had risen to the the place uh, where I needed more information, I would just call the accusers. I would I would try to see if I could understand more deeply what had happened so I can make a decision. Because ultimately, a lot of what happens in this business is people are deciding whether or not to hire people. And we want to we want to make the right choice. Nobody wants uh, to support bad behavior, but at the same time, nobody wants people to lose their livelihoods uh, uh, unless that is warranted for what happened. Can you still watch Woody Allen movies? I don't watch Woody Allen movies, but I, 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 I feel like, you know, the idea of watching people's work uh, – is is more about if I've lost my affection for the person making it. You know what when Woody Allen, uh, what Woody Allen did to his family, separate from the molestation accusation, I found distasteful to the point where it it was hard to watch Sleeper and crack up. Uh, it just changed the prism through which. I used to enjoy all of his work. It wasn't a conscious decision to like it or not. It's just as I learned more information about how he handled uh, his life and his family and uh, the disrespect that he showed them, uh, suddenly it wasn't fun anymore. But, you know, that's just me. Everyone has a different reaction to it. Some people can compartmentalize it. For me, it's more difficult. Going on side by side with this, you hear people like Bill Maher, who you mentioned earlier, sort of saying that audiences have gotten way too PC now and certain jokes won't fly and everyone's too sensitive. And I mean, you hear this a lot in the general culture. What, what do you uh, what do you feel like? Do you feel like there's truth to that? It's hard for me to know. I, I do stand up comedy and. I, I don't feel like I'm censoring myself a, a great deal. Every once in a while, I'll tell a joke and somebody will print it as clickbait. And then I'll, I'll get, you know, calls from hardcore Trump supporters, sometimes sometimes threats. Sometimes they'll, you know, tweet or or, or leave messages. And, and, and it can get pretty ugly, even on just a joke that gets picked up by Breitbart. There's some really dark characters out there. And we've seen that with the reaction to, uh, you know, the kids from uh, Parkland, that they don't even care that you're the survivor of a, of a, of a violent incident. There, there's just bad people out there who don't realize the, you know, the pain they uh, inflict on others. But for me, I'm a little bit rebellious about that. I, I I try to just say what I want to say and 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 let the chips fall where they may. I think that the key to it is you have to believe what you say. You have to be uh, willing to stand behind what you say. Uh, and that's something I learned from Colin Quinn when he was uh, promoting his book, The Coloring Book, which was about race. And a lot of people asked him about political correctness. And he said, you know, you, you need to believe in what you're talking about. You need to believe in your position. You can't be a sloppy thinker. Uh, but there are other people who who think, well, the world is so messed up. We just need to tell jokes. And it's so crazy that we also need crazy jokes and distasteful jokes. And that's just how we get through the day is to just laugh at the madness 
And then there are other people who are so offended they don't want you to do that. And I've always understood that debate. I, I just think generally, if you don't like a movie or a stand-up, just just don't watch. You certainly don't have the right to shut them down. You know, just you know, shut the TV off. Is there something some comic in the past or some movie or some TV show that you did not find funny 30 years ago and now you find hilarious and vice versa? Is there something you really loved and you feel like for whatever reason it hasn't aged well? Well, most comedy doesn't age well. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I don't know how I would feel if I went back and watched all of those, uh, you know, Abbott and Costello movies, how many of them I would have thought were the funniest movies I'd ever seen. Right, right. Um, uh, but, you know, there are movies that you didn't get when you were young that you watch when you're older. You know, I, I, I just watched uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and I didn't understand that as a teenager, and then I watched it recently. And, oh, it's a laugh and, riot, that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess not a comedy. Although the, mo the TV show based on it, Alice was also very funny. Although, would Alice hold up? That's the question. We'll have to watch Well, so Alice what does really hold up, though, that you, when you still watch today from the 70s or 80s or even before that you just go, oh, my God, how does this still work? I think, I think James Brooks's films are as good as uh, human comedies get. I mean, every time I watch broadcast news, I think you can't do it better than that. Terms of Endearment, Diner, uh, Almost Famous. Fast Times at Ridgemont High really holds up. Uh, you know, most of the things I loved as a kid, uh, which were good, are, are still great. Caddyshack's still great. Uh, Stripes is still what it always was. First half was great. Second half isn't great. Yeah, Stripes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, which of your – all right, last question. Really last question. Which of your projects do you think will hold up best? Or, or to, does to this day that you still watch it 10, 15 years later and you say like, oh, you know, this is still – I I haven't really gone back to carefully watch things again. The so I I don't know I I don't know I I do feel like Freaks and Geeks holds up because it was made to to feel retro at the time. Mm. So when Paul Feig and I worked on it, we wanted it to feel a little bit like uh, the 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 80s and as a result it doesn't age uh, uh or hasn't yet uh in in a bad way you know usually things age because you don't know how it's going to age like a movie from the 90s where someone has the largest cell phone in the world uh but and then it just feels wrong and distracting uh, but I think that holds up. The Larry Sanders show holds up. I, I, I've, I've watched some episodes uh, while making the documentary. And I, I think even though the jokes about the news and, and uh, the celebrities uh, are from uh, a slightly different era, the, the, the soul of it is still pretty hilarious. Judd Apatow, the latest project is his latest project is The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, a two part HBO documentary, which airs beginning on HBO Monday, March 26. Judd, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, sir. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs with help today from Laura Flynn. Thanks also to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. And thanks for additional help from Dwali Sikautau in Los Angeles. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at ask at slate.com. That's ask at slate.com. 